Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The National, Monday the 22nd of February 2021. Boris Johnson's senior aide insisted on PM calling the SNP nationalists by Kathleen Nutt. Boris Johnson's senior aide on the union, Oliver Lewis, insisted the Prime Minister keep using the Scottish Nationalist Party to annoy the SNP, it's been claimed. Lewis, who quit his Downing Street role on Friday after two weeks, urged Johnson to refer to the Scottish National Party as the Scottish Nationalist Party at Prime Minister's questions, a move that angered Ian Blackford, the SNP leader in Westminster. Oliver's view is that there's a lot we can do to discombobulate the SNP, was what a friend of Lewis's told the Sunday Times yesterday, saying, the nationalist thing has diverted them into bickering about how nationalist they are. Johnson has been repeatedly rebuked for using the incorrect name of the SNP at the weekly questions in the Commons. He did so on January the 13th, on December the 30th, and on previous occasions. On January 13th, Blackford raised grave concerns of fishermen in his constituency who warned their businesses were being wrecked by Brexit red tape. The Prime Minister responded by claiming the UK government was providing £100 million of support to the UK fishing industry, adding it's the policy of the Scottish Nationalist Party not just to break up the United Kingdom under their harebrained scheme, but also to take Scotland back into the EU and hand back control of Scottish fisheries to Brussels. Blackford said, I'm amazed that the Prime Minister continues to traduce the name of the Scottish National Party. On December the 30th, Speaker Lindsay Hoyle stepped in to caution Johnson at Prime Minister's questions for calling the SNP the Scottish Nationalist Party. Blackford interrupted him to ask the Speaker, can you point out to the Prime Minister the name of my party is the Scottish National Party? Hoyle replied, in fairness, I have pointed it out in the past. It's the Scottish National Party, Prime Minister. Johnson claimed he didn't get the name wrong. He said he wished the right honourable gentleman to know that he was using the word nationalist with a small n, and I don't think that he would disagree with that, which is semantically justifiable under the circumstances. Lewis, the former head of research at the Vote Leave campaign under Dominic Cummings, acted as the de facto deputy to David Frost when he negotiated the UK's Brexit deal. Number 10 has been beset by bitter internal power struggles. Most dramatically, the departure in November of Cummings, Johnson's chief aide, shortly after the resignation of another Vote Leave alumnus, the then head of communications Lee Kane. Stuart Hosey MP, the SNP's shadow cabinet office spokesman, said, Oliver Lewis was out of the door of the failing union unit before he even had a chance to set his desk, following the steps of Luke Graham. With two heads of the unit quitting the roles in the space of a fortnight, the reality is that the Tories' anti-independence campaign is crumbling and its union unit unravelling. However, the entire episode raises very serious questions for Boris Johnson over how much of the taxpayers' money he's wasted in this shambles. 
Taxpayers have the right to know how much money is being splurged on Tory advisers, including Oliver Lewis, whose only campaign idea so far appears to revolve around mispronouncing the party's name. By Kathleen Nutt. The National, Tuesday the 23rd of February 2021. Crown Office demands Holyrood harassment inquiry remove Alex Salmond's submission. By Andrew Learmonth. The Crown Office has urged Holyrood's harassment inquiry to take down testimony from Alex Salmon that was published last night. The Scottish Parliamentary Corporate Body is holding an emergency meeting just now to discuss the demand from prosecutors. Reports suggest they've asked for substantial redactions and removal of material contained in the former First Minister's submission. It's understood that in a letter to the Parliament... The Crown said they had grave concerns the published document was potentially in contempt of court. A Crown Office spokesperson said they wouldn't confirm what they may have done about concerns they may have. They said giving detail could worsen the potential impact of any breach. A spokesperson for the Scottish Parliament said the Crown Office wrote to the SPCB last night and that they'd asked the Crown Office to clarify its concerns. The Cross-Party Harassment Committee is investigating the Scottish Government's flawed probe into allegations of misconduct made against Salmon by two civil servants. He had the exercise set aside in January 2019, with a judicial review declaring it unlawful and tainted by bias. The Government's botched handling ultimately cost the taxpayer half a million pounds. At a later criminal case, the former SNP leader was cleared on 13 counts of sexual assault. He's set to appear before MSPs at the Holyrood Harassment Inquiry tomorrow. If the submissions withdrawn or redacted by the Parliament, then it cannot make up part of the committee's final report and cannot therefore be used by MSPs when questioning Nicola Sturgeon or her predecessor. In his written submission to the committee, Salmond accused a string of senior SNP and Scottish Government figures of trying to have him imprisoned. He told MSPs that it's been a matter of considerable public interest whether there was a conspiracy. He said he'd never adopted the term, but noted that the Cambridge English Dictionary defines it as the activity of secretly planning with other people to do something bad or illegal. He said he would leave it to others to question what is or is not a conspiracy, but he said he was very clear in his position that the evidence supports a deliberate, prolonged, malicious and concerted effort amongst a range of individuals within the Scottish Government and the SNP to damage his reputation, even to the extent of having him imprisoned. Salmon said the most obvious and compelling evidence of the conspiracy was contained in material from his criminal trial that the Crown Office refused to release. Sturgeon, Morell and the other SNP and government figures named by Salmon deny his claims. And last night a spokesman for the party said, This is just more assertion without a shred of credible evidence. Several of the women have already made clear how utterly absurd it is to suggest they were part of a conspiracy to bring him down. And yet Alex Salmon's still making these ridiculous and baseless claims and lashing out at all and sundry. People who supported him loyally for years and and worked tirelessly to get him elected don't deserve these smears. And women who made complaints about his behaviour, who barely merit a mention in his conspiracy dossier, most certainly deserve better. By Andrew Learmonth. The National, Friday the 19th of February 2021. The Holyrood election result could take days as overnight counting is ruled out. By Laura Webster. 
Full results from the upcoming Scottish Parliament election may take days to be announced after a decision was made not to count votes overnight. The counting of ballots usually begins when polls close at 10pm, with this year's vote set to take place on Thursday, May the 6th, subject to any coronavirus restrictions which may be in place at the time. But local authority areas will not begin the process of counting until between 9am and 10am the next day, following a decision from Malcolm Burr, convener of the Electoral Management Board, the EMB, for Scotland. The direction was issued by Burr, also chief executive of the Western Isles Council, earlier this month to returning officers and electoral registration officers. A spokesman for the West Lothian Returning Officer said the counting process may now continue into the following day or days. In the direction Burst states, Returning officers must ensure that the first ballot boxes are opened no earlier than 9am and no later than 10am on Friday the 7th of May 2021 to allow the verification and counting of constituency and regional ballots in their constituencies. For the avoidance of doubt, there is to be no overnight counting of votes. For local government elections in Scotland, a next-day count is well-accepted procedure and is acknowledged to allow a greater level of resilience within election teams. The direction formalises the position that there will be no overnight count, but ensures there will be no undue delay with all counts underway by 10am. Burr said the reasons for the decision include expectation that the counting process will take significantly longer than in previous Scottish Parliament elections, with venues subject to enhanced hygiene and capacity limits, most appropriately managed during daytime hours. It's also hoped the move will significantly reduce the mingling of count and polling staff. Nearly half of Scotland's local authorities have now confirmed plans to start counts on Friday morning, including Argyll and Butte, East Lothian, Highland, Falkirk, Midlothian, Murray, North Ayrshire, Orkney, Renfrewshire, Scottish Borders, South Ayrshire, West Lothian and the Western Isles. A spokeswoman for East Lothian said their count time is still to be agreed, but it will follow the EMB direction, with early indications that postal votes may count for around 40% of the electorate. A spokeswoman for West Lothian also highlighted the direction acknowledges the counting process will take significantly longer than in previous Scottish Parliament elections, and it may have to continue into the following day or days. Numerous other councils are understood to have plans in place or discussions ongoing regarding the Friday morning start time for what First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has already said will not be an election as normal. At the daily COVID-19 briefing yesterday, she said, My view on this, and it has been my view all along, is that if it is at all possible, the election should go ahead. Because we live in a democracy and it is right that people perhaps even more so in a crisis, get the chance to cast their verdict on the government that is running the country. I think it is important that democracy happens. There will be arrangements that have to be made for the safe conduct of voting and counting. By Laura Webster The National, Wednesday the 24th of February 2021 Lib Dem hopeful running Holyrood campaign from Home in London, by Angus Cochran. One of the Lib Dems' top Scottish Parliament election candidates has been running her campaign from her home, hundreds of miles away in London, it's emerged. 
Katie Gordon is the party's number one list candidate in West Scotland, as well as running for the constituency seat in Clydebank and Mulgai. On her website, she claims to have made the west of Scotland her home for the past 22 years, and lists Bears Den as her location on Facebook. She was also introduced as being from East Dunbartonshire at the Lib Dem conference last year. However, the National has learned that Gordon has in fact been living in London for several years. Although she has a flat in Scotland, the candidate has not set foot in the country since October. Gordon, who was Joe Swinson's campaign manager during the 2015, 2017 and 2019 general elections, is a careers guidance professional by trade. She's lived in London since joining the careers group based at Goldsmiths University of London in July 2017. Despite this, she was appointed by Willie Rennie in 2019 to a senior position within the Lib Dems, economy and fair work sportsperson. The party confirmed that Gordon has been canvassing voters remotely from London since October, but it declined to comment on why Rennie appointed someone who lived hundreds of miles away to such a key role. A Scottish Lib Dem spokesperson told The National... After an impressive almost 30-year career working in career support and higher education in Scotland, Katie was recruited to lead a major programme at Goldsmiths University. Just like everyone else, she's been working remotely on the campaign and is determined that the Lib Dems win in the west of Scotland and she will be elected to the Scottish Parliament. They then continued... Katie has co-authored a major paper on the economy, which is being debated at the party's spring conference, which puts recovery first. Gordon, who ran unsuccessfully in the west of Scotland region in the 2016 Holyrood election, sparked controversy in December over her campaign leaflets. The Flyers claimed the race in eastern Bartonshire between the SNP and Lib Dems was so close that voting Conservative or Labour only helps the SNP. There's only 149 votes in it, the leaflet said, referring to Swinson's margin of defeat in the 2019 general election. However, there is no Eastern Barnishire constituency in the Holyrood election, and in the constituency Gordon's actually contesting, Clyde Bank and Mulgai, the odds look considerably less favourable. In the 2016 vote, the SNP's Gil Patterson won 16,158 votes. Labour were next on 7,726 and the Tories won 6,029. The Lib Dems came fourth with just 2,925 votes. Gordon's campaign leaflet was criticised on social media. SNP campaigner Phil McCloy wrote, Scottish Lib Dems chanting their arm here. The wee disclaimer on the graph doesn't excuse your blatant attempts to mislead. There is no Eastern Bartonshire constituency for Holyrood. Gordon was educated in London before studying languages at Aberdeen University. She later did a postgrad course in careers guidance at Edinburgh Napier University. The Lib Dems confirmed Gordon is planning on moving to Scotland permanently if she's elected in May. By Angus Cochran. The National, Thursday the 25th of February 2021. MOD defends essential travel as nuclear convoys to Scotland continue. By Christine Patterson. No justification. Defence chiefs are putting the public at increased risk by moving nuclear warheads across the border through the pandemic, according to a senior MSP. The deadly loads have been brought into Scotland several times, despite a non-essential travel ban, 
campaigners Nukewatch UK say, with the last convoy going through Glasgow city centre to Coalport on the Clyde one month ago and returning to Burfield in Berkshire five days later. Ruth Maguire, MSP, convener of Holyrood's Equality and Human Rights Committee, told The National, The transportation of weapons of mass destruction should never be deemed as essential travel, but there is certainly at the moment no justification for putting us at further risk of potentially overwhelming the NHF if there was an accident. The Cunningham South MSP's call comes after she and anti-nuke colleague Bill Kidd, MSP, met with Community Safety Minister Ash Denham yesterday to raise concerns over the issue. Maguire said, It's never right to possess and deploy nuclear weapons and transport them on public roads. Doing it now is completely irresponsible. People in Scotland should not accept that they are regularly put at risk by the transportation of nuclear weapons via their roads. It's both immoral and economically illiterate to spend hundreds of billions of pounds on weapons of mass destruction that will never be used when we can instead invest that money on an economic recovery that actually benefits the lives of the people we represent. The MOD said moving nuclear materials is an essential operation for national security, adding, We prioritise the safety and security of the public at all times, and movements are always conducted by highly trained personnel in line with all relevant regulations. By Christine Patterson. The National, Monday the 22nd of February 2021. Neil Oliver claims the SNP have made a fool of Scotland in furious attack by Angus Cochrane. Neil Oliver has claimed the SNP has made a fool of Scotland in a ferocious attack on the party and Nicola Sturgeon. The TV presenter called into question the fairness of the upcoming Holyrood election as he criticised the Scottish Government over its handling of the pandemic, the education system and the Salmond Inquiry. Writing in the Sunday Times, the former National Trust for Scotland presenter said the SNP has made me sick to my stomach. He claims that allowing Sturgeon to present coronavirus briefings while normal election campaigning is halted due to the pandemic is a threat to the integrity of May's election. He said any independent team travelling the world to monitor the safety, legality and fairness of elections would surely witness such an egregious imbalance and be on the first plane out of the country to raise the alarm. The column carried on. In Scotland, hardly a soul is moved to bat so much as an eyelid. Much more of this, and Scotland will be the sordid place the Foreign Office tells travellers to steer clear of. Is that the tin-pot clang of a dictatorship? Do I detect the scent of bananas? The broadcaster continued. Every day, Sturgeon stands at her podium and performs her greatest hits about how hard she and her team are working, how much she cares, that she won't be answering that question now. And there's an audience somewhere holding aloft its lighters and singing along. For the rest of the population, it is a shaming spectacle. For many Scots, the SNP is made a fool of Scotland. This comes after several opposition politicians called for the BBC to stop airing the First Minister's briefings. Earlier this month, Labour peer Lord Fuchs penned a letter to the Corporation's Director-General demanding action. Sturgeon has repeatedly dismissed such complaints, insisting that what the BBC broadcasts is not a matter for her, it's a matter for the BBC. She added, At a time like this, 
I'm not going to stop doing my job because it is really important as we steer the country through this pandemic. Oliver also takes aim at the Scottish Government over its management of education and its response to the Salmond Inquiry, which he described as a catalogue of arrogant obfuscations. The TV presenter concludes, This is still my country, but the state of it, after 14 years of SNP misrule, has made me sick to my stomach. The SNP has been approached for comment. By Angus Cochrane. The National, Thursday the 25th of February 2021. Netflix behind her eyes accused of being anti-Scottish and using stereotypes by Laura Webster. Netflix drama Behind Her Eyes is facing criticism for its portrayal of characters from Scotland with an MP accusing the show of using outdated stereotypes. The psychological thriller was released on Netflix last week and follows the story of Mum Louise, who begins an affair with her new boss, David, then starts a secretive friendship with his wife, Adele. The two main Scottish characters are not played by Scots. David is portrayed by Oxford-born Tom Bateman, whose Scottish accent was described as scary by viewers. In one scene, a character called Sue describes David as miserable, telling Louise, they say that about the Scots, don't they? Stingy, isn't it? She replies. Later following an argument between David and Louise, Sue tells her, Told you, Scottish. Bad tempered, aren't they? The series also features Yorkshireman Robert Aramayo, who plays a Scottish drug user. Musician Eddie Reader said the programme, which is based on a book by Sarah Pinborough, featured an anti-Scot script. She wrote on Twitter, OK, I watched Behind Her Eyes. Forget about the mad plot. Did anyone else catch the anti-Scot script? Apparently all Scots are either miserable or mean. Knitting, pure, officially ripped out. I don't accept it, and never ever will. Two SNP MPs also hit out at the programme with Stuart Hosey, telling the Mirror, these daft, tasteless, inaccurate and outdated stereotypes should be consigned to history. Stephen Bonner, the MP for Cope Ridge, Chryston and Bells Hill, added... We Scots are extremely generous people. Scottish hospitality is truly world-renowned. Other viewers wrote online that the use of accents made them uncomfortable. Reader said she'd spoken to the book's author online, who clarified she was not part of the adaptation process beyond selling the rights. Parts of Behind Her Eyes were filmed in Scotland, with Ard Kingless House on the shores of Loch Fyne used as a set for Adele's family home. Netflix declined to comment. By Laura Webster. The National Wednesday, the 24th of February 2021. Alex Salmon demands answers from Lord Advocate over evidence censorship. By Andrew Learmonth. Alex Salmon has demanded the Crown Office reveal if they were instructed to put pressure on Parliament to redact his evidence. The former First Minister was due to be in front of Holyrood's Harassment Committee this morning, but pulled out yesterday after a last-minute intervention from prosecutors saw chunks of his written submission to the ministerial code probe censored. Now his lawyers have written to Lord Advocate James Wolfe, asking him to detail what new information or intervention led to the action taken by the Crown Office. The Law Chief has also been instructed to preserve and retain all material and communications with all or any third parties which led to their decision to intervene at the very last minute. 
Meanwhile, Labour's Jackie Bailey has demanded Wolf appear before MSPs this afternoon to answer questions. With only a handful of weeks until the election, the committee is fast running out of time to write its report. They're due to take evidence from Nicola Sturgeon next week. Salmon could still appear before the committee on Friday. His legal team are taking time to consider the full implications of the decision to redact five of the 33 sections of his submission. The decision to edit Salmon's evidence came after the Crown Office told the Parliament they had grave concerns. It was briefly taken offline on Tuesday morning before being uploaded later in the day with the changes. Information redacted or not published cannot be considered by the committee for the final report, which ultimately means it cannot be raised during the evidence session with Salmon or Sturgeon. In the document, which is Salmon's submission to the prosecutor-led inquiry into whether or not Nicholas Sturgeon broke the ministerial code, he accuses his successor of misleading MSPs and flouting strict rules on transparency and accountability. He has previously tied his appearance to the publication of the submission. The harassment inquiry had twice, by a slim majority, voted against publishing the dossier. Parliament's lawyers had previously warned that it could lead to the women involved in Salmon's criminal trial being identified, breaching a contempt of court order. The committee's unwillingness to publish saw the Spectator magazine going to the High Court, asking for the order to be amended. While Lady Dorian agreed to tweak, there were legal arguments over the impact of the change. At a crunch meeting of the SPCB last Thursday, they decided to overrule the committee, saying that on balance it was possible to publish the dossier. Then on Monday evening, after the document was shared, the Crown Office wrote to Parliament with their concerns, prompting the shock U-turn from the SPCB. In a statement released on Wednesday morning, a spokesperson for the former SNP chief said that Mr Salmond has never refused to give evidence and remains happy to do so. On Monday, it said, he had confirmed attendance at the Parliamentary Committee to deliver his evidence. His submissions had been approved, were published that day, logistical and health and safety arrangements made for the evidence session and travel plans had been organised. Then on Monday afternoon, the First Minister preemptively announced that there was no evidence of wrongdoing on a government's part. This was before Mr Salmon's evidence was even published. Then later Monday night, after publication on the Parliamentary website, the Crown Office intervened, which led to redaction of substantial sections of some of the very evidence the First Minister claimed did not exist. Salmon's lawyers have asked Lord Advocate James Wolfe for an explanation. In particular, they've asked for the legal basis for the Crown's intervention and why there had been no complaint about the paragraphs they asked to have removed until now. They've also asked what new information or intervention led to such a dramatic expansion of the material, which the Parliament has been required to redact. And they've also requested details of any representations made to the Crown Office on this evidence. The Crown Office has been approached for comment. By Andrew Learmonth. The National, Thursday the 25th of February 2021. The Salmond versus Sturgeon battle is lose-lose, but the party can be fixed by Leslie Riddick. What can anyone usefully say about the Alex Salmond v Nicola Sturgeon standoff? Yet in the world of politics, what else is there to worry, fuss and even grieve over? That's not too strong a word for the way many independent supporters currently feel. 
Watching these two erstwhile allies taking lumps out of each other is like watching your political mum and dad split up. Even if it's always inevitable, it's still horrible to witness, especially for those emotionally invested in the cause of independence and the family-like sense of belonging that used to characterise the SNP. Massive figures in the party and the history of devolution are now at daggers drawn, and they cannot both be right. The on-off-on publication of Alex Salmon's evidence has been woeful. Recent interventions by the First Minister, even answering Salmon-related questions in yesterday's Covid briefing, have been odd. And no matter how highfalutin his legal language, the Lord Advocate responding to Jackie Bailey was evasion personified. Maybe there's a justification for the committee's limited reach and tortuous approach to evidence, but Scots expect more than obfuscation, sidestepping and non-answers. We expect a proper, honest process. God love us. And maybe that really is our problem. The Holy Rood Inquiry has exposed an innocence and even a naivety amongst Yes supporters about the messy process of real politics and the misplaced hopefulness the whole complex issue might somehow just disappear. Clearly, at some point after 2014, relations between the two giants of the SNP broke down completely, causing their supporters to fall into camps. With no honest broker universally respected enough to mediate, things festered. Now, whether he manages to take the case beyond a diary dispute to prove a conspiracy, or she manages to tie up every loose end, it's clear that neither party can possibly win. Innocence is gone and the SNP leadership, past and present, looks a bit tawdry. Of course, it's no worse than other political rivals. Labour MPs schemed to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. The Tory party pulled itself apart over Brexit. In Scotland, every party bar the Lib Dems has experienced a headline-grabbing bust-up, and two party leaders were forced to resign in the last 12 months. But folk had much higher expectations of the SNP. It may not be fair, but it's true. A large part of the SNP's success has been holding itself to higher standards than the shabby stuff that passes for democracy south of the border. So Boris Johnson appeared for Covid briefings once in a blue moon, but Nicola Sturgeon appeared virtually every day. Boris Johnson hung on to his special adviser Dominic Cummings after a breach of Covid regulations, but Nicola Sturgeon regretfully let her errant chief medical officer go. Labour condemned cronyism in the House of Lords yet continued to nominate peers but the SNP have simply boycotted the chamber altogether. David Cameron made a great song and dance about English votes for English laws in 2014, but the SNP has quietly abstained from votes that didn't directly affect Scotland for years. Labour and the Lib Dems have talked about PR to improve fairness, but Scotland's actually using it, and the MP expenses scandal found no real echo at Holyrood. When Tory-dominated Westminster takes the low road, the SNP-run Scottish Government has taken the high road. That's the way it's been. It's what we've all come to expect. Better behaviour, cleaner politics and less abuse of power at Holyrood compared to Westminster. So why these great expectations? Perhaps it's the enduring echo of Jimmy Reid, urging the best behaviour during the 70s UCS sit-in. Perhaps it's a version of the old adage that newcomers in any arrangement must always work twice as hard to prove themselves. Perhaps we're just horribly smug. Or perhaps over 20 plus years, 
law-abiding consensual Holyrood has been a constant contrast with the everyday, rule-breaking elitism of Westminster. And of course, let's not lose our perspective. That general description of the law-abiding Scottish Parliament still holds. To gain alpha male and female credentials in the nasty party, serial rule-breaking is the order of the day. If you aren't prepared to run roughshod over procedure, make it up as you go along, insist white is black and black is white, and stab the next guy in the back to progress, then you aren't really the right kind of material for Boris Johnson's inner circle. Look at the wee smirks when they're caught red-handed. Governance for the ruling class is just a game, but for everyone else, for progressive parties, it's much more. Especially in earnest Presbyterian Scotland, especially in the SNP. May not be fair, but there it is, so what can be done? Nothing much about the fight between the big beasts of the SNP, but quite a lot about the state of the party. Whether folk are on the side of Nicola or Alex, the membership needs to exert some control over the leadership. The party of government needs an immediate spring clean, and the party, parliament and government need some clear and urgent lines of separation. The SNP needs vibrant annual conferences that are not corporate schmoozefests, but feature genuine open debate about power relations in feudal Scotland, not just tentative discussions about essentially managing decline. With growing complaints from party members about resources, strategy and direction, the SNP's fanbase appears to vary from sceptical to downright hostile. Just as Neil Lennon recently decided defeat by Ross County was the last straw, So a conscientious long-term manager of the SNP would survey the damage his party is currently sustaining and realise the time has come to move on. A generous act in the midst of this bitter SNP battle would be a welcome and constructive gesture, acting for the greater good and long-term interests of independence, instead of guaranteeing a prolonged field day for critics at such a pivotal time. By Leslie Riddick the National, Wednesday the 24th of February 2021. Scottish Tory leaflet says SNP majority at May vote will result in Indy Ref 2. By Imar O'Toole. A Tory leaflet has been mocked by independent supporters after it said an SNP majority at the Holyrood elections will lead to Indy Ref 2. The flyer, which was sent to households across Scotland, does not mention Boris Johnson stopping a referendum. It says, The SNP will hold another independence referendum in the next parliament if they win a majority at May's election, but their referendum can be stopped if the SNP don't get the majority of seats. The Scottish Conservatives are the only party able to prevent the SNP winning a majority. The leaflet contains a bar chart showing how many seats each party held in 2016. 31 for the Tories, 24 for Labour, 6 for the Greens and 5 for the Lib Dems. It does not mention the SNP, who had 63 seats. Beside the graph it says, Conservatives are the only opposition party in Scotland. The flyer, which is signed by Scottish Tory co-leaders Douglas Ross and Ruth Davidson, mentions the SNP 12 times and the Scottish Tories only 8. Scottish Conservative spokesman said, The SNP are pushing for Indy Ref 2 as early as this year. We've made it clear they will seek to hold an illegal wildcat referendum if they win a majority in May. SNP Deputy Leader Keith Brown told The National, 
Scotland will choose its own future, not Boris Johnson or Michael Gove. The Tories are clearly rattled and their Trump-like attempts to block democracy won't last. Another pro-independence majority at Holyrood in May will confirm Scottish voters want to have their say on a better future in a post-pandemic referendum. The longer Boris Johnson stands in the way of that, the more support for independence will grow. The leaflet goes on to say that Labour won't block the SNP, referencing headlines that said Labour leadership candidates Monica Lennon and Anna Sawar rejected calls for a unionist coalition with the Tories. The current Scottish Labour position is that a new referendum should not be held until at least 2026. Sarwar, who's currently the front-runner in the Scottish Labour leadership contest, is a hardline unionist and has rejected Indy Rev 2 calls. But last week, Lennon said her party must accept Indy Rev 2 if pro-independence parties win a majority at the Holyrood elections. By Imer O'Toole. The National, Tuesday the 23rd of February 2021. Nicola Sturgeon explains her exit from UK government briefing call. By Andrew Learmouth. Nicola Sturgeon has hit out at the UK government after they scheduled a key Four Nations call at the same time as her regular coronavirus briefing. The First Minister was forced to defend leaving the summit with counterparts in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. The Tories accused her of putting a TV appearance above the pandemic. But Sturgeon said the phone call was an update from the UK government on Boris Johnson's roadmap out of the lockdown for England. The First Minister told the Daily Briefing, On the route maps, out of lockdown, I've just come from, I had to leave early to come and do the briefing. A Four Nations discussion that is probably still underway, actually. When asked why she left the call, the SNP leader replied, Because I do this briefing every day. We pointed out that I do this briefing when a call was scheduled for quarter to twelve. I joined it for as long as I could, consistent with my regular commitments, because... If I hadn't turned up here today, no doubt you would have asked that. The call was only set up, I think, yesterday, and I'm represented on the call by officials when I'm not there. You know, I wasn't in charge of the time. I went to it for as long as I could. It wasn't a discussion about, as I understand it, what we were all doing. It was a report on what the Prime Minister was about to announce. So, you know, people will criticise me for whatever I do in relation to the UK government. So I'm just going to do what I think is right, what discharges my responsibilities to the best of my ability. Sturgeon's televised briefings have often been criticised by the opposition parties, who claim they're rarely anything more than glorified party political broadcasts. The Tories yesterday repeated their call to have the briefings fronted by public health officials in the run-up to May's election. A party spokesman said... It will raise more than a few eyebrows that Nicola Sturgeon's priority is the BBC briefing over working together constructively with other governments. She missed a pivotal discussion in favour of a TV appearance where nothing was announced. It shows the value that the SNP leader puts on these BBC briefings in the run-up to the election in May. We continue to be in favour of the briefings continuing fronted solely by public health officials who would not miss vital discussions or misuse the platform to make political points. Earlier this month, George Fuchs, the Labour peer, wrote to Tim Davey, the BBC's Director-General, warning him that showing the briefings in the pre-election period would break impartiality rules. He urged him to intervene personally and immediately to make it clear it's not going to continue.
Downing Street later said the governments were working hand in hand. Johnson's press secretary, Allegra Stratton, told reporters, What you have seen over the last few months of the pandemic is the Westminster government and the Scottish government working very well together. You've seen in where we find ourselves now, where roadmaps will be set out by the PM later, and it will be hand in hand with Nicola Sturgeon's plans. But going back further, you have the furlough and the support for Scottish businesses that the Westminster government made sure was there. You had track and trace and help in the highlands and islands. And most critically and most recently, the making sure by the Westminster government that the number of vaccines there were to be distributed around Scotland. So the relationship between Westminster's government and Scotland and the Scottish people is working very well at the moment. Scotland recorded 715 new coronavirus cases and no deaths yesterday. The First Minister said Scotland's test positivity rate stood at 6.6%, up from 5.5% the previous day. Meanwhile, a total of 1,445,488 had received their first dose of a coronavirus vaccine, an increase of 13,546 from the previous day. Sturgeon announced that people with mild or moderate learning difficulties would be vaccinated as part of the Group 6 JAGs. Currently, that had only been open to those who have health conditions such as diabetes or heart disease, or severe or profound learning difficulties. The First Minister also said that all adults in Scotland could be offered the first vaccine dose by July 31st, if supplies hold up. By Andrew Learmonth. The National, Friday the 19th of February 2021. Tories rage at Nicola Sturgeon over claims she's tearing down union flags. But the joker. British nationalists are absolutely fuming at Nicola Sturgeon. There's little surprise there, but this may just be the most misguided backlash yet. Unionists have been whipped into a frenzy on social media after it was revealed the First Minister had supposedly ordered the Union flag to be flown outside of government buildings on just one day a year. Comments like, Nicola Sturgeon's war with reality continues in earnest this week. And, as the First Minister has instructed that the Union Jack should now only be flown from government buildings on Remembrance Sunday, for the remaining 364 days of the year is to be replaced by the EU flag. Social media users were outraged, including Scottish Tory MSPs Rachel Hamilton and Jamie Green. Party colleague Annie Wells added, Where to begin? The SNP are mired in corruption. They're dogged by complacency and would do anything to distract attention from their dreadful record in government. There is just one minor detail that's being overlooked. It turns out the decision to fly the Union flag exclusively on Remembrance Sunday was made 11 years ago. That's right. And we know this because of a very similar Unionist social media storm from January 2018, when Tories reacted furiously to reports that Sturgeon had ordered the Union flag to be taken down from official government buildings. The rage was compounded when it was alleged the decision had been taken deliberately to coincide with the Queen's birthday. Dickie Arbiter, the Queen's former press secretary, told the Daily Mail he thought the move was churlish, saying, It seems a swipe at Downing Street and at the Union rather than the monarchy as such, but I think it's a daft idea. Murdo Fraser added, Nicola Sturgeon's always keen to stress that her civic nationalism has nothing to do with flags and banners, yet here we are, 
having her trying to eradicate the union flag from government buildings in Scotland. It's just another example of the SNP government pushing its separatist agenda by stealth. Refusing to fly the union flag on the Queen's birthday is something that may well appeal to the extreme elements of the nationalist movement, but ordinary members of the public will be altogether less convinced. But, the Scottish Government pointed out, there had in fact been no change in policy since 2010, when an informal decision was taken to fly the line rampant more often. And former First Minister Alex Salmond has revealed the Queen herself approved the changes. What did change, the government said, was that the practice to use the Union flag only on Remembrance Sunday had been formalised with new written guidance prepared by a civil servant. Before 2010, there were 15 occasions when the Union flag had been hoisted at key official and heritage sites, generally to mark royal birthdays and anniversaries. Sturgeon explained on Twitter in 2017... It has been practised to fly lion rampant on royal occasions since 2010. I have not ordered, instructed, authorised any change. Indeed, there has been no change. Civil servants recently updated published guidance to reflect the long-standing practice. That was not good enough for Scots Tory MSP boss Ruth Davidson, who tweeted... The SNP government should be more concerned with raising standards, not lowering flags. Dismal stuff. Sturgeon later described Davidson's tweet as fake news. By the Juker. The National, Friday the 19th of February 2021. Uber drivers should be classed as workers rather than contractors, judges rule. By Laura Webster. The Supreme Court has ruled against Uber and said that drivers should be classed as workers. Seven justices ruled on the latest round of a long-running fight between Uber operating companies and drivers today, following a hearing in July. Uber operating companies, who said drivers were contractors, not workers, appealed to the Supreme Court after losing three earlier rounds of the fight. Justices dismissed Uber's appeal in a decision the GMB union said was historic. Lawyers said the ruling will have implications for the gig economy. An employment tribunal ruled in 2016 that Uber drivers were workers and were entitled to workers' rights. That ruling was upheld by an employment appeal tribunal and by Court of Appeal judges. Lawyers representing Uber operating companies told Supreme Court justices that the employment tribunal ruling was wrong. They said drivers did not undertake to work for Uber but were independent third-party contractors but lawyers representing drivers said the tribunal was entitled to conclude that drivers were working. A law firm enlisted by GMB to represent Uber drivers says they will now be entitled to compensation for lost pay. Lee Day lawyers think tens of thousands of Uber drivers could be entitled to an average of £12,000 each. A Lee Day spokeswoman said the case would return to an employment tribunal for decisions to be made on how much compensation drivers should get. Mick Ricks, GMB National Officer, said This has been a gruelling four-year legal battle for our members, but it's ended in a historic win. The Supreme Court has upheld the decision of three previous courts, backing up what GMB has said all along. Uber drivers are workers and entitled to breaks, holiday pay and minimum wage. Uber must now stop wasting time and money pursuing lost legal causes and do what's right by the drivers who prop up its empire. 
GMB will now consult with our Uber driver members over their forthcoming compensation claim. Mark Keynes, an Uber driver in London for five years, said in a statement, Being an Uber driver can be stressful. They can ban you from driving from them at the drop of a hat, and there's no appeal process. At the very least, we should have had the same rights as any other workers. And I'm very glad I'm part of this claim. By Laura Webster. The National, Monday the 22nd of February 2021. Covid in Scotland. Vaccines shown to be up to 94% effective. By Richard Mason. Vaccines have already had a substantial effect on the risk of being admitted to hospital with serious illness, new analysis shows. Researchers in Scotland found that by the fourth week after receiving the initial dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech or Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccines, the risk of being admitted to hospital from COVID-19 was reduced by up to 85% and 94% respectively. Scientists from the Universities of Edinburgh, Strathclyde, Aberdeen, Glasgow and St Andrews and Public Health Scotland examined data on people who'd received either of the JAGs compared with people who'd not yet received a dose. Four weeks after receiving the initial dose, the AstraZeneca JAG appeared to reduce a person's risk of hospital admission by 94%. Those who received the Pfizer jab had a reduction in risk of 85% between 28 and 34 days after the first dose. Data for the two jabs combined showed that among people over the age of 80 who are at high risk of severe disease, the reduction in risk of hospital admission was 81% four weeks after the first dose. Lead researcher of the Scotland Vaccine Study, Professor Aziz Sheikh, director of the University of Edinburgh's Usher Institute, said these results are very encouraging and have given us great reasons to be optimistic for the future. The study is the first to describe a countrywide effect of the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines in the community on preventing severe illness resulting in hospital admissions. The researchers examined data between December 8th and February 15th. During this period, 1.14 million vaccines were administered in Scotland. That's 21% of the Scottish population. The Pfizer vaccine has been received by some 650,000 people, while 490,000 have had the AstraZeneca jag. Researchers looked at GP records on vaccination, hospital admissions, death registrations and laboratory test results and compared the outcomes of those who'd received their first jab with those who'd not. Dr Jim McMenamin, National COVID-19 Incident Director at Public Health Scotland, said these results are important as we move from expectation to firm evidence of benefit from vaccines. For anyone offered the vaccine, I encourage them to get vaccinated. Chris Robertson, Professor of Public Health Epidemiology at the University of Strathclyde, said the early national results give a reason to be more optimistic about the control of the epidemic. However, while the data shows that the vaccination programme is likely to be preventing severe illness related to COVID-19, there's not yet clear data on how it stops transmission. Dr Josie Murray, Public Health Scotland's Public Health Consultant Lead for the EVE2 project, said the results do not have any bearing on the virus's ability to transmit from person to person and did not advise any changes. She said, 
I think it's really important to emphasise that these data don't support any comment about transmission or indeed transmission policy, and therefore we wouldn't be advising on the basis of these results that we should alter anything that we've got implemented currently to stop transmission of the virus from person to person within Scotland. The brilliant news is that the vaccine delivery programme is in its current format suggesting that it's working. What I would urge people to continue to do is to follow all the public health guidance to stop transmission because these results don't have any bearing on the virus's ability to transmit from person to person. She said that as a group of scientists, they would recommend policymakers continue following the JCVI guidance. Dr Murray urged people offered the vaccine to take the first and second doses, saying... We can see from these data that you can protect yourself and your family and your friends and you can also protect the NHS by taking the vaccine. By Richard Mason. Leslie Riddock. The salmon versus sturgeon battle is lose-lose, but the party can be fixed. An article published in the National of Thursday the 25th of February 2021. What can anyone usefully say about the Alex Salmond versus Nicola Sturgeon standoff? Yet in the world of politics, what else is there to worry, fuss and even grieve over? That's not too strong a word for the way many independent supporters currently feel. Watching these two erstwhile allies taking lumps out of one another is like watching your political mum and dad split up. Even if it was always inevitable, it's still horrible to witness, especially for those emotionally invested in the cause of independence and the family-like sense of belonging that used to characterise the SNP. Massive figures in the party and the history of devolution are now at daggers drawn, and they can't both be right. The on off on publication of Alex Salmon's evidence has been woeful. Recent interventions by the First Minister, even answering Salmon related questions in yesterday's Covid briefing, have been odd. And no matter how highfalutin his legal language, the Lord Advocate responding to Jackie Bailey was evasion personified. Maybe there's a justification for the committee's limited reach and tortuous approach to evidence, but Scots expect more than obfuscation, sidestepping and non-answers. We expect a proper, honest process. God love us. And maybe that really is our problem. The Holyrood Inquiry has exposed an innocence and even a naivety amongst Yes supporters about the messy process of real politics and the misplaced hopefulness the whole complex issue might somehow just disappear. Clearly, at some point after 2014, relations between the two giants of the SNP broke down completely, causing their supporters to fall into camps. With no honest broker universally respected enough to mediate, things festered. 
Now, whether he manages to take the case beyond a diary dispute to prove a conspiracy or she manages to tie up every loose end, it's clear that neither party can possibly win. Innocence has gone and the SNP leadership past and present looks a bit tawdry. Of course, that's no worse than other political rivals. Labour MPs schemed to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn and the Tory party pulled itself apart over Brexit. In Scotland, every party bar the Lib Dems has experienced a headline-grabbing bust-up and two party leaders were forced to resign in the last 12 months. But folk had much higher expectations of the SNP. It may not be fair, but it's true. A large part of the SNP's success has been holding itself to higher standards than the shabby stuff that passes for democracy south of the border. So Boris Johnson appeared for Covid briefings once in a blue moon, but Novid's Nicola Sturgeon appeared virtually every day. Boris Johnson hung on to his special adviser Dominic Cummings after a breach of Covid regulations, but Nicola Sturgeon regretfully let her errant chief medical officer go. Labour condemned cronyism in the House of Lords. It continued to nominate peers, but the SNP have simply boycotted the chamber altogether. David Cameron made a great song and dance about English votes for English laws in 2014, but the SNP had quietly abstained from votes that didn't directly affect Scotland for years. Labour and the Lib Dems have talked about PR to improve fairness, but Scotland is actually using it, and the MP expenses scandal found no real echo at Holyrood. Right now, Boris Johnson is reeling off dates for easing lockdown in England without data, scientific backing or any track record of good guesswork behind him, while Nicola Sturgeon has taken a tougher path, refusing to make up dates to get the media off her back and pointing out, gently, that the same approach last time ultimately kept Scotland out of lockdown for longer. When... Tory-dominated Westminster takes the low road, the SNP-run Scottish Government has taken the high road. That's the way it's been. It's what we've all come to expect. Better behaviour, cleaner politics and less abuse of power at Holyrood compared to Westminster. Why these great expectations? Perhaps it's the enduring echo of Jimmy Reid urging the best behaviour during the 70s UCS sit-in. Perhaps it's a version of the old adage that newcomers in any arrangement must always work twice as hard to prove themselves. Perhaps we're just horribly smug. Or perhaps over 20 plus years, Law-abiding, consensual Hollywood has been a constant contrast with the everyday rule-breaking elitism of Westminster. And of course, let's not lose our perspective. That general description of the law-abiding Scottish Parliament still holds. Compare and contrast Matt Hancock, found to have broken the law by concealing Covid contracts, awarded to chums who were ten times more likely to be fast-tracked and successful, ditto Home Secretary Priti Patel, found guilty of bullying, 
the DWP judged to have acted unlawfully over universal credit. The Community Secretary Robert Jenrick, who unlawfully fast-tracked a Richard Desmond property deal, saving the Tory party donor £40 million in community charge payments. And let's not forget Dominic Cummings with his regulation-busting trip to Barnard Castle and Boris Johnson's unlawful proroguing of Parliament. To gain alpha male and female credentials in the nasty party, serial rule-breaking is the order of the day. If you aren't prepared to run roughshod over procedure, make it up as you go along, insist white is black and black is white and stab the next guy in the back to progress, then you aren't really the right kind of material for Johnson's inner circle. Look at the wee smirks when they're caught red-handed. Governance for the ruling class is just a game. But for everyone else, for progressive parties, it is much more. Especially in earnest Presbyterian Scotland. Especially in the SNP. It may not be fair, but there it is. So what can be done? Nothing much about the fight between the big beasts of the SNP, but quite a lot about the state of the party. Whether folk are on the side of Nicola or Alec, the membership needs to exert some control over the leadership. The party government needs an immediate spring clean and the party, parliament and government need some clear and urgent lines of separation. The SNP needs vibrant annual conferences that are not corporate schmooze fests but feature genuine open debate about power relations in feudal Scotland, not just tentative discussions about essentially managing decline. The SNP urgently needs to lose its paranoid wariness of interference by other YES supporters, fellow travellers, think tanks, campaigners and this newspaper. It needs to become clubbable and gregarious again. Reach out to the whole independence movement. Stop taking support for granted and treating critics with wariness and suspicion. Degrees of separation between the party and the Scottish Government are urgently needed and that simply isn't possible with the current CEO at the helm. I've nothing against Peter Murrow. Indeed, despite a lengthy involvement in Yes politics and an even longer one in Scottish journalism, I've never actually met him. But with growing complaints from party members about resources, strategy and direction, the SNP's fan base appears to vary from sceptical to downright hostile. Just as Neil Lennon recently decided defeat by Ross County was the last straw, so a conscientious long-term manager of the SNP would survey the damage his party is currently sustaining and realise the time has come to move on. A generous act in the midst of this bitter SNP battle would be a welcome and constructive gesture acting for the greater good and long-term interests of independence instead of guaranteeing a prolonged fuel day for critics at such a pivotal time. Richard Walker, 
The union unit has been a fiasco and Boris must know it's doomed to fail. An article by Richard Walker, columnist, published in The National of the 25th of February 2021. Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross is in the running for the Understatement of the Week award when he says Westminster's move to dampen support for Scottish independence has had its troubles. The union unit has been a fiasco. Since being set up towards the end of last year, its achievements have amounted to a big fat zero. The first most of us heard about it was when its leader, former Ojo and Perth MP Luke Graham, was unceremoniously sacked barely three weeks ago. Since then, things have gone from bad to worse, with the unfortunate Graham's replacement leaving the post two months after being appointed. Oliver Lewis reportedly fell victim to schisms within the Downing Street team, which saw Michael Gove and Boris Johnson's partner, Carrie Simmons, pitched against Johnson's former Chief of Staff, Dominic Cummings. It's not the departure of Lewis himself that interests me, not even the infighting which led to his departure. After all, political parties descend into internal rowing all the time, I can't summon up the energy to even care much about the role of Cummings, although you'd have to feel good about anything which makes his position in modern British politics even more wobbly than it currently seems. What I find baffling is why the Prime Minister's strategy for winning hearts and minds for the Union is so completely useless. It could of course be down to simple incompetence, just look at his performance over Brexit, which saw Britain leaving the EU with just about the worst deal imaginable. The queue of lorries full of rotting produce as they tried in vain to reach European markets were a testament to the Prime Minister's lack of ability to grasp a brief. You could criticise former Tory Prime Minister David Cameron for many things, not least of them calling the EU referendum in the first place, but at least he had the sense to recognise Scots' antipathy towards the Tories meant he had to look elsewhere for a frontman to lead better together. OK, Alistair Darling wasn't exactly inspiring, but imagine some of the alternatives. There is no way any of us would have got to the end of a Gordon Brown speech and still been awake. There's absolutely no evidence that Boris Johnson has the slightest clue what people in Scotland think about anything. Soon after becoming Prime Minister, he appointed himself Minister of the Union when anyone who had been in Scotland for longer than five minutes would be aware that he was widely regarded as a buffoon north of the border. The front page of the first edition of the Sunday National back in 2018 bore the headline Boris set to go for PM and trigger Indie Ref 2. We were able to accurately predict that without the aid of psychic powers because it was so blindingly obvious. Since then matters have got worse rather than better. 
When he decided to appoint Luke Graham as leader of the union unit, he must have known that he had few qualifications for the job. Graham had been a Scottish MP for barely two years. During that time, he had done nothing to inspire confidence in his ability to win friends and influence people north of the border. What encouraged Johnson to give him the job? Was it a punishment for Graham's support for Michael Gove's campaign to become Tory leader? If so, the Prime Minister has certainly had his revenge now. It's impossible to say if Oliver Lewis would have been more successful in the role, given how little time he was in it. It's certainly true to say that his appointment had more to do with internal Downing Street machinations than an affinity with Scotland. He did, however, boast the necessary attributes listed in recent ads for recruits to join the union unit, in that he had no knowledge of the country whose threatened departure from the UK the organisation had been established to thwart. Boris Johnson may have been driven by a determination to get Brexit done, but the fact is that the United Kingdom was not united in sharing that ambition. Scotland voted to remain in the EU, but the arithmetic of the Union meant that Scotland's wishes were ignored, just as we are continually outvoted in general elections. The Prime Minister's reaction to our different view was to ignore it, to belittle those we elected to represent us in Westminster, and to dismiss out of hand every suggestion they put forward which might have limited the damage Brexit would wreak upon our economy. He must now realise that his attitude is helping to grow the number of Scots who support independence, but he does nothing to soften it. He ignores our views and simply tells us to like it or lump it. When we make it clear that we want a second independence referendum in opinion poll after opinion poll, he simply denies democracy and votes to block it. Why has he continued adopting a strategy guaranteed to alienate Scots? Is it because he is influenced by an increasingly powerful brand of British nationalism that sees the Union as mainly England with a few added bits? Is it because a lifetime of privilege and wealth has robbed him of the ability to empathise with others with different experiences? Or because he just can't be bothered to care what people think in a land he knows nothing about? I would guess that all three of those alternatives play a part in shaping the Prime Minister's attitude. But there is a more troubling possibility. Johnson doesn't care because he doesn't need to care. He doesn't need Scottish votes to remain in power. If anything, the loss of the country would make his position more secure. He set up the union unit to be seen to do something, anything, to tick the box. No UK Prime Minister wants to preside over the breakup of the union, particularly not one representing the Conservative and Unionist Party, it's generally accepted that the Prime Minister who finds themselves in that unfortunate position would have to resign. The union unit allows Johnson to say, I did everything I could. Look, I even set up this special unit and threw money at it. 
He doesn't care that there is a clear democratic case for a second independence referendum because he believes he doesn't need to care. Why risk the prospect of losing a referendum when you can stop one taking place for as long as you are in power? For a whole generation, Johnson will do the bare minimum to preserve the union because he doesn't really believe it's under threat as long as he can block the referendum. It's up to us to prove him wrong. Sport from the National on Friday the 26th of February 2021. Cricket. Abtaha Maksud on breaking down barriers and hitting them for six by Graham McPherson. Twitter, ampersand capital G, R-A-E-M-E, underscore capital M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S. You can't be what you can't see. That idea that role models are hugely important for inspiring the next generation is something Abdahar Maksud feels very strongly about. The 21-year-old grew up as part of a cricket-mad family in Glasgow, joining her brother for training sessions at Pollock by the time she was 11. It was an intimidating experience, not just because she was the only girl at that time, but also because nowhere, at matches or even while watching on television, could she see someone who looked like her, a Muslim female wearing the traditional hijab head covering. Cricket in Scotland, however, has come a long way in the intervening decade. A dedicated women's team at West of Scotland has been founded and thrived. Its makeup an eclectic mix of players young and old, Asian and white. Maxud has undoubtedly played a part in helping create that diversity. A seven-year veteran of the Wildcats international squad, after being first called up age 14, the leg spinner has become one of the most visible players on the Scottish cricket scene of recent years. Her profile will go up another notch this summer when she, fingers crossed, takes part in the inaugural The Hundred, a new innovative format of cricket where each side faces 100 balls in a fast-paced alternative to T20. Maxud has been called up to represent Birmingham Phoenix and, with some matches set to be shown on free-to-air television, hopes the sight of her bright orange hijab might inspire others. When I was growing up, I didn't really have anyone to look up to who was in the limelight as a Muslim woman with a hijab on playing sport at a high level, she says. I feel that if I can be that person for someone, that would be amazing. I'd love to be able to inspire as many young girls as possible. There's a horrible stereotype about Muslim women not being able to play cricket and we're all oppressed when that's just not the case. We just need a bit of a push sometimes and the right opportunity. You do hear stories that there are barriers to Muslim women playing sport, which is definitely a cultural thing. In some countries they are oppressed, not because they are Muslim, but just because they are women. It's not a religious thing, it's purely cultural. But in the UK it doesn't seem to me that people are stopping Muslim women from playing cricket. It's more that they're not really encouraged the way some families would encourage their sons. They don't think that's what women are meant to do. But if people are able to see me in the hundred and realise that a girl wearing a hijab can do it, then that will hopefully inspire a few more to give it a go. 
There were no such family issues for Maxud to have to overcome, with Dad Mohammed a huge influence in her cricketing development. He's just so supportive in everything I do, she adds. When I was younger and couldn't drive, my dad would take me everywhere for games and training. He was my personal taxi driver back then. He basically taught me how to play cricket, how to hold a bat and bowl, so he's been really important in my journey. Her dad's support was vital in the early years when she was one of the youngest in the senior Scotland setup. Seven years later, the Glasgow University dentistry student admits she now feels more comfortable in those surroundings. It's been quite the journey with Scotland. It was tough to fit in when I was that young as the rest of the team was a lot older. I was quite quiet and didn't talk much. But a year or two later, Catherine and Sarah Bryce joined the squad, so I became more confident when there were more people around my own age. The past year has been a frustrating one for all Scotland sides, men and women, with fixtures falling one by one by the wayside. A planned trip to La Manga to take on Ireland in November was called off, just days before the team was set to travel, but Maxud is hoping this year turns out better. It's weird as I've not actually played since November and even then it was just indoor training. I'm used to playing cricket three times a week all the time. It was always so busy and now it's just completely stopped. I was meant to be on that Lamanga trip and then it got called off last minute. At that point I thought there was no way they could cancel. So that was a shock when it went off. I'd managed to get time off uni and the rest of the guys had reorganised their lives for it but hopefully it can be rescheduled. We're all really missing competing, but fingers crossed this will end up being a much busier year for us all. And that article was by Graham McPherson. This is Sport from The National on Friday the 19th of February 2021. Craig Wright explains return to Scottish cricket five years after walking away by Graham McPherson. Twitter ampersand capital G R A E M E underscore capital M A C P H E R S. Just when he thought he was out, they pulled him back in. Having spent two decades within the Cricket Scotland system in various roles, player, captain, development officer, marketing manager and assistant coach, Craig Wright walked away from it all in 2016. Disillusioned by the game's governing body, the International Cricket Council, ICC, restricting opportunities for associate nations like Scotland and in need of a fresh challenge, the 194 times capped player called it a day after the T20 World Cup in India. A chance to coach overseas took him to Hong Kong for two years before he returned to Edinburgh where he has been coaching academy players as well as helping out a former teammate, Jamie Kerr, with his property business. The lure of a return to the inner sanctum of the Scottish game, however, has proved too great and so Wright is now back as assistant to men's head coach Shane Berger, his enthusiasm restored ahead of a year that could, Covid permitting, be a busy one, concluding with another T20 World Cup in India. The 46-year-old was correct five years ago to fear the decision to reduce the 50-over World Cup to just 10 teams would cost Scotland, although they came agonisingly close to upsetting the odds. 
but he has witnessed breakthrough moments such as a first ever ODI win over a full member side and the memorable home victory over England to feel suitably encouraged that cricket in Scotland has continued to grow despite the ICC's best attempts to keep them down. Now he wants to help restore that momentum once cricket in this country gets going again. Having had a couple of years away and then coming back, I can say for sure that my passion for Scottish cricket is as strong as ever, he says. This role that suited my skill set came around and it just felt that the stars were aligning. It was the right time to come back in. In 2016, we had just come off the back of featuring in two World Cups, and the next year to 18 months after that looked really quiet, plus there was the shift to the 10-team 50-over World Cup. I just felt that, having been involved with Cricket Scotland for so long, and with a period of competition downtime looming, it was the right time to step away and see where my head was at. I had intended to take some time away from cricket completely, but then the Hong Kong chance came around out of the blue and it was too good an opportunity to turn down and it was a fantastic experience. But now I'm back and this opportunity has come up at the right time for me with the squad hopefully heading into a really busy period and I'm excited to be a part of that again. Wright and Berger may be forming a new coaching alliance but the Scot is no stranger to the squad having worked with many of them prior to his departure five years ago. He added, I've been involved with this group of players for a long time, the vast majority of them since they were in the youth programme. I've always had a faith and belief in their ability, and we've seen that come to the fore in recent times with some of the landmark wins that they've had. With the qualification process for the 50-over World Cup in particular becoming tougher, it's now about showing that consistency to make sure you get those places that are available for the global events. With COVID having knocked a year off the programme, there's a lot of cricket to catch up on, and hopefully we can string together some good runs and start to build momentum again. South African-born Berger has a vision to make cricket as high-profile in this country as football, and Wright, a massive Aberdeen fan, knows only big results and regular appearances at major tournaments will help catch and retain the public's eye. It's tough, as we know, that it's very difficult to compete with football in this country, added the Paisley-born coach. That's why it's so important to get access to the global events so that we're playing on the international stage against the main full-member countries. I've been shouting about this since the early 2000s, so it's not a new thing. But the game-changer for cricket for me will be having regular home fixtures against the leading nations and appearing at World Cups, and winning some of those games when they come around. We saw the excitement that everyone felt when we beat England in 2018. Even non-cricket fans were talking about that win. If the team can keep progressing and pulling off results like that on a more regular basis, then I'm sure interest in the sport in Scotland will only grow. And that article was by Graham McPherson. This is Sport from The National on Friday the 19th of February 2021. Lars Krista Olsen. Scotland should have Champions League spot by James Kearney. Twitter, ampersand capital J, A-M-E-S, capital C, A-I-R-N-E-Y, capital H, capital T.
European football chief Lars Christer Olsen has argued that the winners of the Scottish Premiership should be guaranteed a place in the group stages of the Champions League every season. UEFA, European football's governing body, are currently in discussions over a change in format to the continent's Premier Club competition to be implemented by 2024. The Swiss model setup is believed to be favoured by UEFA, which would see an additional three spots open up in the Champions League. And Olsen, who served as chief executive of UEFA between 2003 and 2007, thinks that any shake-up must prioritise domestic champions over clubs from the so-called Big Five leagues in England, France, Germany, Italy and Spain. Olsen said, We think the three extra positions should be allocated in a way that more associations can be represented in the Champions League. It must not be given to one of the Big Five associations. We are also of the opinion that the so-called country cap of the Champions League should stay at maximum five teams from the same association. We actually prefer champions from Scotland, Denmark or Switzerland to qualify, rather than team number six from England or Spain. And that article was by James Kearney. Sport from The National on Friday the 26th of February 2021. Scottish tennis stars Jamie and Andy Murray to play in Battle of the Brits in Aberdeen by Caitlin Hutchison. Twitter, capital C-A-I-T-L-I-N, capital H-U-T-C-H-I-E. Andy Murray and Jamie Murray are set to headline a tennis event bringing together Britain's best tennis players in Scotland this December. Jamie Murray is back in his tournament director's chair with live tennis coming to Scotland with a special Battle of the Brits, a Scotland versus England event to be held on the 21st to the 22nd of December 2021. The tournament is to take place at Aberdeen's P&J Live Arena. Players competing for the trophy will include Jamie, seven-time Grand Slam champion in doubles and mixed doubles, former world number one in men's doubles and Davis Cup winner, as well as Sir Andy Murray, the former world number one, two-time Wimbledon champion, US Open and Davis Cup winner and two-time Olympic champion. The tournament will give Scottish sports fans their first chance to watch the Murrays play live on home turf since Andy took on Roger Federer in the Andy Murray Live event in Glasgow in November 2017. A Scotland team spearheaded by the Murray brothers will face tough competition from an England lineup that is set to feature their Davis Cup teammate Dan Evans. At 28 in the world rankings, Evans is currently the UK's number one male player and recently won his first ATP Tour title in Melbourne. Evans from Birmingham is known for his entertaining tennis and feisty on-court demeanour. A full list of players and a broadcast partner for Battle of the Brits, Scotland versus England, will be released in the coming weeks. Jamie Murray said he was super excited to bring live tennis to Scotland. He said, Andy and I have had some incredible experiences competing as part of Team GB in Davis Cup in Scotland, but to be able to represent Scotland is such a unique opportunity for us, especially against England. 
I would love to think Andy's and my achievements can inspire a passion for tennis in Scotland and help build a lasting legacy for the sport here. Bringing big tennis events to Scotland is a huge part of that. This will be an amazing two days of tennis and entertainment for all the family. The event itself will feature six matches, four singles and two doubles, played over an intense two-day period. Louise Stewart, head of entertainment at P&J Live, said, We are thrilled to be hosting this unique and exciting event at P&J Live. This will be the first ever tennis event to be held at the northeast of Scotland's events complex. We will be ending the year on a high. And that article was by Caitlin Hutchison. And that was this week's The National Podcast, only recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.